Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians. We're going we're starting chapter two this morning. Ephesians chapter two, we're going to be looking at verses one through three. Now actually this section of scripture in Ephesians has an unfortunate break in the chapters. Because this passage of Scripture is still talking about the power of God. You see, this Scripture is here to help God's people gain spiritual understanding about the greatness of salvation. And it is leading us to have a certainty about the power of Christ working in us. We sang about that so that we know we are in Him and He is in us. That we may know that nothing can frustrate His purpose. Nothing can frustrate the purpose of God. Nothing can withstand Him. And because we are in Christ, nothing can withstand us ultimately because Christ has taken us from death to resurrection life. God raising us up with Christ laid the foundation for our transformation and for our reshaping. In fact, that's where he's heading. If you look at verse number 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So the Lord is reshaping us. He's making us new. So here, Scripture is designed to push out doubt about our transformation in Christ. It gives us believers surety that our daily lives will be transformed if we grasp the hope of our calling, if we know what we can expect as members of Christ's body. So far, what God has done for us in Christ in this chapter, chapter 1, He has chosen us to praise Him. He has adopted us as His children and has begun reshaping us. That's what He is doing with us. And so our persons right now, as believers, our persons bear the marks of his fingerprints. They bear the marks of, of his workmanship. In Christ, we truly are new people. We got to get that. We got to get that. We have a new identity. And right now, right now, as a believer, we have a new identity individually because of what Christ is doing in us and corporately together as a church. Christ takes you out of darkness, he puts you into light, he brings you into his church, and light is being dispelled to you by the word of God. So with the newness of being in Christ brings us to a place where we, being, we begin to shrug off forever the bondage of past hopelessness. So God's taken us out of hopelessness and given us hope but before, before we can do this, 
before we can really grasp the greatness of God's power in salvation, we must see the depth to which we sunk. We must must see the enormity and the power of sin that it had over us as believers. As, I mean, unbelievers, actually. So our position before God in sin was so dangerous and so hazardous that it could only be rectified by the power of God because no one can raise the spiritual dead. Only God can do that. So, only when you see what you once were without Christ, can you more fully understand and appreciate what God has done for you by His grace in Christ. That's the point of this passage. Often biblical counselors, once they help the counselee see their sin issue and give some biblical principles to help work through a solution, the counselor will usually ask the counselee, if you were to implement this principle, how would it look in your life? That's a great question. I don't care what you say. In, in anything you're doing. It's a great question. How's this going to look, man? If, if you put this principle into your life, how's it going to look? Now, with that question, though, the counselee is forced to contrast his or her bad behavior with what is a description of a new behavior based on biblical principles and then how that would look in their life. Well, in a similar similar way, this new life in Christ becomes clearer when it is contrasted with what you were, chapters 2, verse 1 through 3, what you are, chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, and what you shall be, chapter 2, verse 7 through 10. That's where he's heading the Apostle, in teaching us this morning so that you can see what your Christian life is supposed to look like while God's power works within you and He makes you into a new creation. You have to know what it's going to look like. You have to know where you came from. The best way to know how you're going to look is to know where you came from. So now let's look to our text to see what the Word of God is showing us as to the characteristics which permeated every one of our lives when we were outside of Christ. That is, before God began to act upon you. Before He began to act upon you with His resurrection power. In other words, what you all once were pre-conversion. We could not have a wondrous relationship to Christ unless we were raised to our new position by God and by the salvation of grace in Christ. So you see, we must be often reminded of what we once were and what God has now made us to be. We have to 
know those things. So there's five things that comes up out of these verses that is important for us to know where we came from. So here's the first one. Without Christ, without Christ, you once walked around in the condition of deadness. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I ask you that you would take the word of God. And I pray that you would weld it upon our hearts and our minds. I pray we would not forget it. And that, Lord, it, it would always, we would always be mindful of where you've taken us from. So help us to know that there's nothing we could have done to rescue ourselves from the condition that is explained to us here, except by the power of God. And help us to see that today in Christ's name. Amen. Look what it says there. Now, if, if your Bible has any other words beside you were dead in your trespasses and sins, they're adding it for explanation that really comes out of verse number 5. But in the Greek... And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That's all it says. So there's no better word to describe man in, their, in his fallen state and depraved condition than being dead. There's, that's the best word. There's no better word. You can look high and low. You'll not find a better word to describe who we were. And just as a person physically dead does not respond to physical stimuli so a person spiritually dead is unable to respond to spiritual things the corpse doesn't hear a conversation going on in the funeral home the corpse has no appetite for food or drink it feels no pain he or she is dead just so with the inner man of the unsaved person, with the inner man of us before conversion, our spiritual faculties were not functioning. And they could not function unless God gives it life. So ultimately, dead means to be ignorant of God. It means a person doesn't know God. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, no need to turn there, puts it like this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, not to know God is to be dead. Because God is the life giver. He is the source of all life. Life comes from nowhere else except Him. So therefore, if you don't know Him, you are spiritually dead. So life that is non-Christian is a living death. So before we became believers, we were walking around alive physically, but dead spiritually. And so, this was our condition. In fact, He uses two words to actually make this emphatic. And here are the two words he used to show our deadness. The first one is, of course, 
trespasses. The second one is sin. But Paul speaks of sin as a power that holds humanity under its sway and leads them to death. See, how much power did sin have over you and I pre-conversion? Do we even realize that? Do we even know that? Well, you know, the apostle is trying to get to his audience and to you too. That, listen, for you to be saved, for you to be a Christian, it had to be God's power. It could be nothing else. In fact, the first word, transgression, your transgressions, it says there, is a word that means to false step, literally. If you remember the great, in fact, another way to say it, 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 it could be translated a slip or a fall. If you remember the great message by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he used Deuteronomy chapter 32 as its text, and in that text was included the, the theme of slipping. And it says this, Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time. Their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. In other words, uh, speaking about you and I, we couldn't walk without slipping and falling. You and I kept falling away from the true and the upright life. Oh, we tried to live good lives. We tried to do what was right, but we couldn't. Why? Because we kept falling. And then he uses another word with transgression or trespass, and it's the word harmatia, which is he translates here sin. And sin, this word is a is a it's a shooting word. If you like to shoot arrows, like to shoot pistols. And what he's talking about here is sin is a failure to hit the target. It literally means to miss. Hit the target of God's righteous standard. No, we, we, commonly, we commonly have a wrong idea about sin. Even after becoming believers and learning somewhat of the Word of God, we readily agree, you and I would readily agree, that a murderer or a gangster or an adulterer or a drugger or a drunkard, to name a few, or a, a, any, anyone else you want to put on there are sinners, but once, but, but since we think of ourselves mostly of res, as respectable citizens, in our heart of hearts, we think that sin is, is, really doesn't have much to do with us. But harmatia, this word sin here, brings us face to face with what sin is. It's a failure to be what you ought to be and could be before God. And since the day sin entered the world, everyone, Everyone who is a descendant of Adam, and that's all of us, has become, has been born sinful, including everyone who sits here and myself. Sin is a big problem in life. It causes guilt. It causes a, quick, a crooked twist in the fabric of all of human existence. See, man has taken what Christ has created good and twisted it into something evil. 
we have missed the mark. We have fallen short of the glory of God, right? That's what the scripture says. You know, if you've been watching the Olympics uh, the last, I don't know how long they were on. They were on a, on a, a long time. And for your information, you know, uh, one of my Greek professors, uh, his, her, his daughter, Allison Felix, won three gold medals in the, in the running competitions in this Olympics. So he must be a pretty proud dad. But my favorite area is gymnastics. But not many understand how, understand how, gym, how gymnastic events are scored. Do you? Everyone always looks so super. I mean, it's hard to tell who's better or who's worse. Unless they fall off the bar, you know they goofed up. So how do judges know who is best? Gymnastics is measured by how well each move is executed. How the feet and the hands move. How the body arches. How difficult the moves are and how the landings are done. Because most of us do not know what to look for. We may not see any mistakes. But the judges know what is perfect. It's written down there in their books. They have an eye to see the technique. They watch to see how close each athlete comes to the standard. All gymnasts know that the standard for a perfect perform what a, the standard of a perfect performance is. Most never come near perfection, although all try to attain it. Life is, of course, not an event in Olympic gymnastics, but in some ways the two are similar. Our God is holy and perfect. He cannot allow sin into his presence. And just as most gymnasts fall short of reaching the standard, all human beings fall short. They slip and fall. They miss the target of reaching the standard God has set for all of us. We all missed it. There's no way we can hit it. We can't get the round in the bullseye, no matter what we do. Yet, also, there's a dilemma that still exists even today about the subject of sin. If that word is even used anymore, the human race has always dealt with sin and evil quite inadequately. Sin and evils are Evident, though, wherever you go in all social classes, all intellectual levels, in every place human beings call home, no matter where it is, there is sin. Historically, it's been proven, though, past approaches do not deal correctly with evil and sin, nor really properly explain man's dilemma. For example, this is how society usually deals with sin. Well, if, uh, if there's sin and evil, then if we provide more education, then we should solve the problem, so let's educate. Or, see, they, they look at sin as a social concept. And so they would say, listen, if we can, sin is caused by, you know, a bad environment, they didn't have a chance, they, they, they grew up, in the, and they, they got born into that environment, and so therefore, let's change the environment. Or if... There's no role models anymore. Uh, let's provide them ro road models, and it should help. But see, J.I. Packard said something very significant concerning how one looks at sin. He said, sin is not a social concept. It's a theological concept. 
What he means is that sin is not something that happens to us because of our surroundings or because of our social settings. It's something we are. We are sinners. And that's how Scripture looks at it. All human beings are born sinners and will sin no matter what surroundings or social settings they find themselves. And so when humans sin, they are missing the mark of God's righteous standard. And at the same time, of course, they're hitting something else. They're hitting unrighteousness. That's why when you look through the Bible in the Old and New Testaments, when you find words for sin, there's not just one word, sin. There's words like unrighteousness, uh, rebellion, wickedness, selfishness, disobedience, lawlessness. There's, there's all kinds of words to describe what's inside of us, what's already there in the heart. And so the Bible all over the place is trying to show us that sin is a violation of a standard that has been set, and it is a violation against the one who set the standard, God himself. So you and I drastically have fallen short of that standard every time, all the time, and it is not that human beings are as bad as they could be, but that all humans have the potential for the worst of sin. So consequently, your life pre-conversion was dominated by sin. And because it was dominated by sin, you put yourself up against the one who made the standard, God. Who could deliver you from that spiritual dead condition who can you can education can a role model can a changed environment can more money can reading all books on morality and ethics do it what can do it nothing can do it right but you know what that's just where he starts he doesn't even leave us. If he left us there, I think we would get somewhat what he was, he was saying, but he doesn't leave us there. He goes on to explain what he means by we are dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And so secondly, it's not the only thing that he uses to describe your pre-conversion condition. The second thing is found in verse number 2, that without Christ, you once conducted your life in harmony with the way of the present age in which you live in. Look what it says in verse 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So he is saying to us, listen, you formerly walked. Who? You and I. Formerly walked by the course of this world. Now, world can mean several things. But I think both things are included here. The first thing world means is that man, man in rebellion against God. All right? Man being hostile to the standard, to the person, to their creator. And the second way I believe it's used is as a way of life. That the world system, the, the phrase, the course of this world is the order or the system of this earth as it now exists since sin and death invaded it. And, of course, the depravity of mankind. It involves the world's values and pleasures 
and pastimes and aspirations. In other words, you and I lived governed by this present world. Its outlook, its outlook was our outlook. Its mentality was our mentality. You can't get away from it. You live in the world. And so therefore, its educational system, its government, all right, its ethics, its morality is all being dictated to everyone. Right? But they're not obeying God. They're opposed to God. And so that's where we lived. We lived in rebellion to God. So the world was and is a main hindrance because it, it really extends considerable influence over people. Even, of course, now as believers. And just by way of reminder, I'm not talking about the physical world, which God made, we're, we're, to, we're to care for that and we're to take, enjoy that. God's given it to us for good. I'm talking about the current thoughts, the philosophies, the ideologies that connect how the world system thinks because this world system has been in every generation, no matter when you live, opposed to God and his truth. And if you just read through the Bible, you'll find how governments raise themselves up against God and the king is telling God that he's made all this and then, of course, God has to step in and humble them and change them. But God, remember, Scripture says God raises up kings, right? He raises up presidents. He takes them down. He raises up countries. He takes them down. Why? He's God. And that's the way the Bible portrays it. So, see, the considerable influence, just think about it for a minute, the, the world influences what hairstyle you have. It influences uh, your opinions about politics. It gives you a certain language, depending on where you're living in the country. The way you spend your money, what you spend your money on. What you desire. How and what you should worship. See, they say stuff like, you sh uh, listen, well, actually, what, it's, what, what they do is they say what you should and should not worship. Of course, worship anything you want, but don't worship the true and living God. Don't worship the God of the Christians. Listen, tolerate anything, but don't tolerate the Christians. It seems like that's exactly the way it goes. So if you have a keen spiritual eye, Satan's fingerprints are found everywhere in this world and can be readily seen reflected in certain patterns and behaviors woven into the fabric of society. According to Scripture, the world system is said to be under the control of the evil one. In 1 John, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's what Scripture says about it. And so therefore, it lies in darkness and it is under judgment. And of course, for the believer, the believer should not set their affections on this system, nor its values, nor its pleasures, nor its pastimes, or ent entertainments, or its ambitions. But Scripture is saying this, but you were influenced by them. You did exactly what the world said to do. And so the world has a strong sway over us and presents to us patterns and customs. I mean, let's face it. Some things in society just a short while ago 
were taboo. You're, you, you, you shouldn't talk about these things. But today, things like homosexuality and gay rights and same-sex marriages and civil unions and feminism and the chif- uh, and women doing a job better than men could do and all kinds of twisted role things that are going on and abortion and divorce and remarriage all these things the culture takes well what happens in our culture that had made these things and things like them acceptable and normal behavior has the truth changed has God's word changed you see in our culture it lifts the stigma and it normalizes the behavior until it lasts long enough people don't even question it all right so now we live in the middle of all the movement and change and we are not exempt from taking on its thinking and most of the time we do very little examination and find out for ourselves what's really going on and if we really taken on some of that thinking see much sinful activity is normalized until no one questions it so you know what that means that means you and I were making our moral and ethical and social decisions based on what is acceptable in society. And that's what our young people have to learn. They have to learn to live by God's standards, not by the world's. See, when we were in our unconverted condition, we weren't asking these questions. Well, what does God say about this? We weren't saying, what does God want me to do? See, you and I were just going along with the flow and change with very little, if any, discernment or critical thinking about what is really going on. See, all these show that the world has a power to it. The system of the world and its thinking has a power over sinners. It, it caters to sin. It's, it's good at selling sin, man. It can sell anything with sex. Anything. Even it has nothing to do with it. The product, they can sell it. Why? Because they know how to do it. They know how to, how to cater to. Why? Because behind it all, behind it all is Satan himself. See, people live in total disregard of the judgments of God, of the person of God, and the standards of God, the very existence of God. And the Bible says people who love the world do not love the Father. So there is a, a drastic change that happens between you and the world system when you become a Christian. Because once you start loving the Father, once you start realizing what pleases the Father, then the world's pull upon you not only becomes evident to you, but you begin to resist it. And you begin to want to do God's will and want to please Him. Now, you would think that that would be enough to show us where God took us from. You would think that, all right, Paul, I get it. I see where you took me from. But He doesn't stop there because He wants us to get this. He wants us to really see it. That you, what you and I were pre-conversion. And so He describes 
yet another thing in verse number two. He says this. He says, in which you were formal, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, and then notice this, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. See, the Bible is saying here, listen, without Christ, thirdly, you once walked under the authoritative lure of Satan. Have you seen yourself like that? Do you know that's what's happening? Do you know that's still happening? That the devil is the ruler of the air. He is the prince of the power of the air. His power is not earthly, no. It belongs to another realm. In fact, the word, the term power of the air may mean either power that dwells in the air or the power of darkness. I take it to mean that it's talking about the power of darkness because if you flip over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12, you will find there, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And of course, Colossians says it's something like that. He says he rescued us from where? The domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So see, Satan was our ruler. God was not our ruler. Satan was. In fact, he was not only our ruler. If you notice in verse number two, the devil is the spirit that now is at work in unbelievers. It says, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So here, the term spirit means principle. That is a power, there's a a power about the principle that he's using. It's not a passive thing. It's an active principle. An evil that is at work, that the evil principle is governed by the devil. In fact, the devil is so subtle That he dominates man. And he persuades him at the same time that he is not being dominated. That's who who you and I were. Would anybody pre-conversion admit that they were controlled by the world? Or that their ruler was Satan and that Satan was actually working in them? Would Would they say that? They would tell you you're crazy. I would tell somebody they're crazy. I'm not a... Satan follower, that's, ooh, don't do that. But see, that's what he does. He so blinds us to his own character, to his own influence, to his own power. He even convinces you that you have free will and that you dominate your own life, that you can do what you want, when you want, and you can pick and choose things, but you're not picking and choosing anything that you're not being guided to pick and choose by the world system, by your own base sinful nature and by a very very formidable and powerful enemy satan who is in control in you and the bible is saying here he was working in you he was not working outside of you he was working in you he was working in your inner man in other words a spiritual force of a spiritual force is is powerfully at work to blind the minds of the truth, to, de- to deceive people, to entice to evil, that the evil one 
will even gain entry to your mind and heart through any means possible, whatever he wants to use. And he has everything at his disposal. He has thousands and thousands of years of practice. He knows exactly how to tempt you. He knows exactly how to seduce you with words and lies and pictures and music and entertainment. He knows exactly how to reel you in. How are you going to fight against that? How are you going to rescue yourself from that? See, what is man anyway in the state of sin? Well, the the Bible answers that question in verse number two. He was working in the sons of what? Disobedience, right? Who's that? You know who that is? That's you. That's me. See, when God created Adam and Eve, they were perfect. They lived in a perfect world and enjoyed a perfect relationship with their creator. God gave them one law, one rule. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He told them what would happen if they did. They, when you eat, you will surely die. Well, Adam and Eve did break God's law. They chose their own way and they disobeyed God. So see, whenever human beings fall short of meeting the standard of God that he has said, the breaking of that standard is categorized by this one word, disobedience. That's what he is saying here. This is man's state. He's a person who disobeys all the time. Disobedience is the distinctive character of people in sin. Not merely disobedience to a command, but also to unbelief. A heartfelt refusal to place one's confidence in something or someone. It is a rebellion of the right of God to command us. Does God have the right to command you as his creatures? Does he? He absolutely does. So it's man self-asserting against God himself. That man has a sinful fallen nature. He has a bad heart because of Adam's sin nature. Adam's sin nature was passed on to all of us. And because Adam disobeyed, you know what we do? We disobey. All right? We have a bad record because we'll commit our own acts of sin. In fact, Paul in Romans, said it like this, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But then it says this, but by the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. So see, spiritual forces beyond our ability to resist influence your behavior and encouraged your rebellion against God, and you didn't even know it. You didn't even recognize it. People know there's something wrong, but they just don't know how to diagnose it. They go to all kinds of places to diagnose it, but they can't. Now, you would even think that, okay, Paul, I got it. I see who I was. I see the influence that was over me and controlled me. 
I see the, the power of the world to lure me in and cause me to gratify my sinful cravings, but he doesn't stop there. In verse number three, he says this. He says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. In other words, without Christ, you once lived governed by strong lust and passions of body and mind, which you constantly fed and gave into. That's who you were. That's who you were. See, the cravings of sinful of the lust of the flesh. Anything in the world system can become a source of sinful desire, even though it is good in and of itself, that the fleshly body can be the source of sensual desires and lust, food and drink and sexual gratification, and on it goes, that lusts, lusts are those strong, urgent cravings for something, usually which is forbidden and prohibited. And so that's what we were. We were by nature sinful. We had a sin nature. Right? We had a sin nature. Now why do dogs do what they do? Dogs behave like dogs because they have a dog's nature. If somebody though, if somebody could transplant into the into the dog, the nature of a cat. Don't you think his behavior would radically change? A dog meowing, scratching, you know, doing what they do. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of cats. So I would not do this. I'm not, I'm, I am somewhat of, a, a more of a fan of dogs. I'm not a fan of cats. But no, there would be a radical change. So, so why does a sinner behave like a sinner? Because he has the nature of Adam. The nature of a sinner. A sinful nature. The Bible calls the flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, it says in Scripture. Meaning that the entire person is affected. The mind, the thoughts... The deeds, these include every base fire kindled in the human heart, which reaches out for an object in order to satisf satisfy itself. See, the flesh is, is an important topic, actually, in Scripture. In fact, there's two words for this uh, word flesh, lust of the flesh. One is, one is soma, which means body, body parts. And the other one is... Sarks, which means also body, but it's usually a second. The second term is often re referred to the fallen, corrupt human nature. To be born in the flesh means that we have no inclination towards spiritual things. To the things of God, the flesh is spiritually dead. So see, the flesh is the sinful nature or the old man. Paul said it like this in Romans 7, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
For the willing is present with me, but the doing of good is not. See, there's that principle in us. And of course, the Spirit is the renewed part, power of the new man. That's why when you come to a passage like Galatians 5.16, it says, but, I, but uh, I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So as a Christian, we have two natures. A new one, and a remaining old one. In other words, the new nature does not alienate the flesh. Christians have to struggle against the flesh until they enter glory. You know that already as a believer. That's why Paul says, For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For they are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you please. So there is a warfare between the new man, the spiritual, and the old man, the flesh. However, the war is not a war between the souls and the body. Why is that? Because our physical bodies are not inherently evil. The flesh refers to the fallen nature, which includes the body, the mind, the soul, the heart, thoughts, will, and decisions, and stuff like that. So what, what's that war? Well, our new, renewed spirit and our fallen nature. See, the works of the flesh are those things motivated by a sinful heart. That's what the works of the flesh are. In fact, that passage again in Galatians where it says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. What are they? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. He could have went on in the list, but he, he would go on forever. And then he says, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So a pagan, someone in their unsaved condition, is someone who has a mind of flesh, a fallen mind, preoccupied with physical lust. It is a mind whose thoughts are impure, who does not want to retain God in their thoughts or in their plans. They just have no reverence for God. That is what he's talking about. That is what the flesh is. By its base nature, it doesn't want anything to do with God. It just wants to gratify the sinful cravings that it has and the thoughts that it has. And finally, it does. It does. So we are battling the remaining powers of our sinful, corrupt natures. Paul said again, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So when we are born again of the Spirit, we have a desire for holy things, which we never had before. We have a desire to please God, to honor God. But we're torn. We're torn between these two desires. We want to please God as a believer. As a believer, we want to please God, but our flesh still has power there. It still have, wants to crave things there. So we're, we're caught in between so that when we sin, our desires to commit sin is more pleasurable, at least in our desire, than our desire to obey Christ. Because remember, the core distinction of an unbeliever is disobedience 
and a believer doesn't want to disobey. And when they do, they know it. So the war going on inside of us is a war of desires. The battle is the battle for your mind. In other words, we are still tempted by the idea that sin will make us happy. We are still tempted by the idea that if I have this, it will fulfill me. If I get into this forbidden relationship, it will satisfy my cravings. See, we, we, we believe the lie. And where is the lie coming from? It's coming from Satan. It's coming from the world. It's coming and he's, it's doing everything to entice our sin and our transgression that's already there. And so, see, we think that something's going to make us happy. Now, it won't make us happy it will give us pleasure, though. And so, you know what? We have a trade-off. I'll take the pleasure. And so what do people do? They're running all over the world trying to find pleasure. You and I, it's talking about, we're running all over the place just to gratify our sinful desires. We covet, we want more. Pornography is out there. Why? To satisfy sinful pleasure. The pride of life. Making it. What does it mean to make it? Well, scripturally it means to live for God and be faithful. That's making it. So see, everything's changed when you become believers. So all these things, brethren, is describing you and I in a pre conversion state but there's one last thing and I want you to see it in verse number 3 it says this at the end of the verse and we're by nature children of wrath even as the rest in other words without Christ you live the life which deserving only of the wrath of God so you see our predicament without Christ was that we were objects of God's displeasure. We were objects of God's judgment. We were ob objects of God's anger. So due to our failure to live up to the standard of God's holiness, we were under God's wrath. And upon our death, we would have been justly condemned to an eternity in hell. We would have. Because God's justice will be satisfied either by Christ on the cross or in eternity in hell. It must be. But if you notice the little phrase at the end of verse 3, even as the rest, this is describing the predicament of all of mankind, just in case somebody was saying, well, hey, Paul, you're not talking about me. You must be talking about my neighbor who lives next door or the, this person I work with or my husband or wife or my kids. You must be talking about somebody else. No, the Bible is saying, listen, every single human being is in this predicament. By birth, all human beings possess flesh and thoughts that lead to sinful desires and action. That means the human condition, apart from the gospel, is a constant state of rebellion against God, and that deserves God's judgment. That's where God took every one of us in Christ, by grace. That's where he's taking us. 
He says, if, unless you see that, unless you see the depth in which he wounds you out of a pit, the pit of sin that you could not get out of yourself, unless you see that, you will not appreciate. You will not see how deep and wide the love of God is. How un fathomable is the grace of God that he's extended to you that you have been adopted that you've been elected before the foundation of the world you're not going to understand that until you understand what God has done the tragedy of all this is not only in the reality of hell as a punishment for sin but the fact that humans are helpless to do anything about it that sin has caused such a crooked twist in this world that within you Man on the inside has corruption and death. Man on the outside with his fellow man is engaged in combat and with God his creator and is under his wrath. So what kind of, what kind of condition is that? You know, what it, you know what that says? That's a very sad and unhappy and unwholesome condition. And that's where you and I were. What's going to rescue us from that predicament what I say this nothing but God's power and that's his point nothing but God's power can rescue you from what you were nothing but God's power can rescue you from the power of Satan or the influence of the world or the Sin, nature that you have, nothing but God's power. See, only when you see what you once were without Christ can you more fully understand what God has done for you by His grace in Christ. And if you see that, then, if you see that, if you're beginning to grapple with that, then you can see verses 4 and 5. Look what it says in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you see where you came from, then you can see where you are. And when you see that, you want to talk about worship? You'll have nothing but praise for God. And you'll never try to claim anything to your salvation. That's why he goes on to say it's not by works you've been saved, right? He, he, he puts that in there to know like you couldn't add anything to it. You couldn't do anything. You could not save yourself from the incredible predicament you were in. Only God could do it. See, salvation is of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. It, it is so incredibly powerful. I pray, Lord, the power of your word and the influence of your word upon people would be lasting. To all those who listen this morning, I pray, Lord, it would be such an impression upon them that, Lord, they would either look at themselves and say, I'm not a believer at all. I still want 
what Paul was describing. Or they would say, my. Where the Lord brought me from. Oh Lord, I don't praise you enough. I don't exalt your name enough. I don't desire to put down my flesh enough. I don't look for my heavenly home enough. Oh Lord, please impress these truths upon our heart. So we are leaving here without doubt and knowing very clearly what once we were without Christ. And so this morning, Lord, do what you need to do in the hearts of people. And I pray that you would establish yourself as the King of kings and Lord of lords in every man's heart. And do it for the praise and glory of your name, the advancement of your church and your kingdom. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.